Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, we have a three-part, three-interview special episode on Houston. It's a city that everyone has watched closely in recent weeks, but that few outsiders know much about. It's a sprawling and highly segregated metropolis where environmental injustice, guided by sharp inequality, hits poor neighborhoods of color the hardest. My guests today are Robert Bullard, a longtime leader of the environmental justice movement, historian Tawana Steptoe, and housing advocate John Hennenberger. Before we dive in, I want to thank the more than 400 people who have supported the show so far on Patreon.com. To keep doing these two shows a week, though, we still need more support. In fact, we'd like to get to 700 supporters by the end of the year. And I think we can do it. So, if you haven't already, press pause and go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash the dig. If you can only do a buck a month, that's great. If you can do five, even better. Ten or more comes with socialist book swag. And we have a really exciting fall lineup, as I mentioned a few days ago. Not yet finalized, but includes Khaled Bedoun, Aziz Rana, Francis Fox Piven, Stephen Wertheim, Brandy Jensen, Leslie Lee, Eve Pacer, Paul Freimer, Matt Chrisman, Corey Robin, Matt Karp, Noel Bridgen, Tim Shorrock, Nikhil Saval, and Dorothy Roberts. Thanks for listening and for your support. First up, we have historian Tawana Steptoe, a professor at the University of Arizona and the author of Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. Tawana Steptoe, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the history, one thing that really struck me putting together the show is that Houston is the fourth largest city but isn't studied that much by scholars. For for listeners who hadn't given much thought to the city before Harvey arrived, um, can you lay out what makes it distinct in terms of its people, its economy, its politics? Well, I think one thing that makes Houston different from the other cities that are in the five of the five largest in the United States is that Houston only recently got that status, right? So if you think about the three cities that are larger, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, all of those have been major cities for far longer than Houston was. In the early 20th century, Houston was maybe the 25th largest city in the country. You know, Cleveland, Ohio was bigger than Houston. San Francisco had a larger population than Houston. So Houston's growth has been since really World War II in terms of it becoming a major city. By 1960 is when it became one of the 10th largest for the first time. So I think that's one of the reasons why there aren't as many books about Houston or as much historical work done on the city. It's been so recently that it's even become a major city that sometimes I think it just gets left out of the narrative of urban America. The other reason is because, you know, the city's kind of weird. You know, regionally (laughs) speaking, 
it's you know it's southern uh in terms of its history uh its politics have for a lot of its history been linked to the deep south and demographically it was african american and anglo for much of its history so a lot of houston history is linked to the american south but at the same time being in Texas, it's also part of a Western history and a Southwestern history. So it sort of sits on the border of these two regions. And I think that the Western heritage of Houston, or linking it to the Southwest, has been something that's more recent in the city's history. Uh, in my own research, I never found references to Houstonians referring to themselves as Western or Southwestern until the 1970s with the oil boom. Then Houston started to take on a sort of Western uh, vibe and sort of persona. And in a lot of ways, I think Houston, as with Dallas, which is just four hours to the north, in some ways I think that that was an intentional rebranding of the city to try to move away from an association with the South and especially with civil rights and the violent civil of the civil rights movement that occurred in the 1960s. Houston's rebranding in the 70s as a sort of oil town, a place with a rodeo and with cowboys and that sort of thing, <laughs> sort of leads you, it makes you not think so much of the disfranchisement of African Americans. It makes you think of something more Western that can be celebrated. So uh, there's this sort of dual heritage that goes on with Houston that I also think means that it gets left out of both narratives of the West and narratives of the South. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. Um, I want to talk about that that history that this reinvention of Houston as a Western city obscures. The Great Migrations um, are often remembered as a giant movement of black people from the South to the North and Midwest, but it also included Houston and other cities. When did black people start arriving in Houston, to Houston in large numbers? Where did they come from, and what sort of city did they find when they arrived? Um, unlike New York, Chicago, and other Great Migration destinations, Houston had been a, a slave city before. Right. And that's one of the things that makes Houston a different sort of great migration city is that black migrants moved to a place that had already had a long history of African-American communities there. As you said, it was a slave city. Uh, it was a place where plantation owners could actually come to Houston and purchase slaves for the surrounding plantations. And Houston was surrounded by a huge plantation belt that was known as the Sugar Bowl. Today, the Sugar Bowl are suburbs, many of which were just flooded during Harvey. So this is very close proximity to the plantation belt. And the origins of Black Houston are in both slaves from the city as well as former slaves who moved to Houston following the Civil War and who established communities there. So during World War One, there's another wave of black migration to the city. And when those migrants come, they move into communities that had already existed since Reconstruction. So that immediately makes the Great Migration to Houston very different from a place like New York or Chicago. Both of those places had African Americans, but not such an old and established African American community as you would have found in a place like Houston. Uh, when black migrants arrive, they go to a, a city around World War I that's 
economically pretty prosperous. Houston comes out of the First World War with a different economy, an economy that was especially connected to the export of oil and cotton. And that happened because during World War One, the Buffalo Bayou in the city was dredged to make it deep enough to accommodate ocean-going vessels. So what that means is that the port of Houston becomes a more international port. Ships can load up on cotton, um, oil-related products, and then leave Houston and go out into the ocean, right? So then cotton grown in Texas then becomes used to make uniforms for World War II soldiers in England. All right, so because of that, Houston's economy accelerates. The Port of Houston needs more labor. You also have uh, Houston as a center of railroads. The Southern Pacific Railroad and southern, several other lines ran through the city, and they were also recruiting men to work. So you get this huge influx of migrants who come to the city because jobs are available. And in some cases, some of those employers were specifically looking for African-American men. Right, and it has to do with a lot of stereotypes about race and labor. Right, they thought that black men were suitable laborers for lifting bales of cotton onto ships in 100 degree sun. So they specifically recruited black men from the countryside to move there. So you see, uh, with Reconstruction being the first big boom in the free black population, World War One is the second one, and uh, there's tremendous growth in the black community. As I found in my research, though, of course, it's also at that same time that Houston also starts to diversify and stops being so much of a city where most of the people are Anglo and African-American and who speak English and go to Protestant churches. Uh, around World War One, you also start getting a growth in the ethnic Mexican population, people who are both coming from other parts of Texas, especially South Texas, as well as immigrants coming from Mexico. Uh, I was really surprised when I started my research to learn that the Latino population of Houston was actually very small in the early 20th century. Uh, in 1920, there's an estimated 1% of Houstonians who were yeah, of Latin American I was, descent. I was shocked to read that in your work. Right. And I mean, today, of course, uh, something like 44% of the population of Houston is of Latin American descent. So going from being the smallest group to the largest in one century is one of the dramatic things that changes the demographics and culture of Houston. And at the same time, uh, my research also looked at the growth of the Louisiana Creole population coming from rural southwestern Louisiana. Uh, the same labor recruiters who were trying to lure African Americans from East Texas to come to Houston also went to southwestern Louisiana looking for laborers. And people who may not be familiar with the geography of the Gulf Coast, Houston is very close to Louisiana. I grew up in the city, and I can get I could get to Louisiana in about ninety minutes from where I grew up. Just so down highway, uh, highway ten. Highway ten, right? Very, very close. And there's always been this back and forth between eastern Texas and southwestern Louisiana. And so, for people who were living in the southwest part of Louisiana, Houston is actually the closest city. You know, uh, depending on where you're living, Houston is closer than New Orleans, even. So uh, 
the Southern Pacific Railroad especially went into Louisiana to recruit French-speaking Catholic Louisianans to come to the city to work. And natural disaster also led to the influx of Louisianans because the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 devastated farmland in that region. So because of both economic opportunity and because of natural disaster, you get a spike in the Louisiana Creole population at the same time. So my research looked at how those two groups, ethnic Mexicans and Louisiana Creoles, started to transform Houston into a place where the majority of the population wasn't uh, African-American or Anglo or even Protestant or English-speaking. It's fascinating that you sort of laid out this direct link from the cotton economy that initially relied on slave labor to the petrochemical economy in terms of the the rise of Houston as a port city and the dredging of the the bayou, um, and that this economic transformation led to this mass influx of, of black and Creole and ultimately Mexican labor. What sort of city did new black and other arrivals to Houston find when when they arrived? They definitely arrived in a legally segregated Jim Crow society. Uh, the city of Houston had segregated all of its public spaces in the first decade of the 20th century. So, you know, when I was saying earlier that Houston politically has been connected to the American South. That's one of the things that I mean. Houston began to legalize segregation at the same time as the rest of the former Confederacy. So by World War I, this is a place where you would have absolutely seen signs that said white only, or if you got on a streetcar, there would have been the colored section in the rear. And so because the population had been black and white, from the 1830s onward, segregation in Houston did follow that racial binary of white over black. So that would have applied to schools, parks, restaurants, every potential place where the races could meet. And so the migrants who came had to, by law, follow those very strict lines. But of course, not everyone's identity can fall under white and black, these really big umbrellas. And so ethnic Mexicans, by law, were considered white. And I make a distinction, though, between the legal categories of race and how race operated on the ground, right? Because although ethnic Mexicans had legal standing as white, it didn't mean that they were considered equal to Anglos, right? English-speaking white Texans. And so I found that all sorts of segregationist practices operated in local institutions that ensured that ethnic Mexicans knew that they were not equal to Anglo. Uh, So to give an example, Ethnic Mexican students could attend schools that had been segregated for white students. And so beginning around the 1910s, you start to get an influx of ethnic Mexican children into these white schools. School administrators in many cases responded to this by putting students who had Spanish last names into separate classrooms 
right? So they were the classes for Spanish students, right? And the justification for it was that, well, they spoke a different language, so they needed different things in the classroom, right? But in some cases, the students were coming from other parts of Texas, and they could absolutely speak English, right? But they were using language as an excuse to segregate the population. Now, this wasn't done at the legal level, right? The Houston School Board didn't create separate schools and then by law state that ethnic Mexicans had to go to them, right? It wasn't at that level. It was happening locally within schools, creating these segregationist practices. Later, uh, there are schools built in ethnic Mexican communities where then those children become the majority of students there. But even in those cases, there were some efforts to um, segregate the students or at least to uh, teach, give them a sense that they were inferior. So, for example, they outlawed Spanish in some schools, right? Absolutely no Spanish being spoken. And uh, in other cases, when there were the Anglo and Mexican-American students present, uh, certain students wouldn't be allowed to attend certain functions or to be on, to be part of certain clubs, right? So there's local segregation going on, even though they're considered white by law. At the same time, Creoles of color were black by law, but what I found is that some of those Creole migrants didn't identify as black because in Louisiana, they had historically been considered part of a different group. Uh, in Louisiana, in colonial Louisiana, of course, Louisiana was a French colony and a Spanish colony, you got the emergence of a mixed-race group there that sort of existed between white and black. These were people who tended to have either French or Spanish fathers, and in most cases, enslaved African mothers. And the mixed-race population who had been freed by their white fathers went on to create their own community, really. They were called free people of color before the Civil War, and many of them were landowning with land that had been given to them from their white fathers, and they created a separate society where they ranked above black slaves because they were free and in many cases landowning, but they didn't have all of the rights of the free white population. They had many of those rights, but not they weren't considered equal in the eyes of the law. So there was a sort of three-tier system in colonial Louisiana. And by the Civil And then it gets War, sort of that, compressed once they leave Louisiana into the black or white dichotomy. Right, right. So gradually over the course of the 19th century, you see... The, the population of free people of color gradually lose rights, right? When Louisiana becomes a state within the United States, Anglo settlers, one of the first things they do is try to strip that free population of some of its rights. Uh, that project comes to fruition, of course, after the Civil War with the coming of Jim Crow. Jim Crow laws identified mixed-race people, if you had any African ancestry, as black or as Negro. And there was no middle group in existence anymore. But I found that Creoles of color, who were descended from free people of color, continued to identify as Creole. And they saw Creole as being neither white nor black. And they were very committed to that identity of being a mixed group that is neither. The problem is that Jim Crow forces people 
into either group. So, of course, by law, they were black. But when Creoles move into Houston, the majority move to Fifth Ward, which is on the north side of the city, and they create a community in Fifth Ward known as Frenchtown. And in Frenchtown, they actually did work to try to create a separate community, something where Creole was still distinct. But they had to send their children to segregated black public schools, like Phyllis Wheatley in Fifth Ward. So Phyllis Wheatley becomes this space where French-speaking Catholic Creoles, many of whom didn't identify as black, go to the same classes as African-American Texas-born students. And there were some conflicts at times. Um, In some cases, black Texans argued that there was a hierarchy based on skin color in the community where they said Creoles had more privilege in the community, right? That it was Creole girls who got selected to be cheerleaders or to be the lead in the school play, right? So when I was interviewing people from Fifth Ward about what it was like to be in a community that had black Texans and Creoles, I heard a lot of resentment in some cases coming from black Texans who felt that there was a hierarchy there that put light-skinned Creoles over darker-skinned people. At the same time, many Creoles said that they felt ostracized when they were at Wheatley High School because when they first showed up, they didn't speak English, right? And so they felt like they were not fully part of the community in the 20s and 30s when they first got there. So, you know, if you look at the legal level, Houston was black and white. But when you go beneath the surface there and start looking at interactions that occurred, like in public schools, there's something much more complicated racially that was going on. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Larry Website, The Dig's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for The Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show. So... In that complicated context and the very difficult context of surviving under a brutal Jim Crow regime, uh, black people and others in Houston also created a really vibrant culture and strong community institutions, which is something that you've written a lot about, including a lot of jazz, blues, Zydeco. What sort of artists and art emerged from the city and what made Houston so conducive to it all? One thing that I found is that culture wound up being the tool that people used to build community, right? So you've got a community like Fifth Ward that has Frenchtown as part of it, and you have black Texans living there as well. These groups don't identify with one another. They don't even speak the same language in some points. But what I found is that music, especially jazz as well as blues and Zotico become these community-building tools. It was in Phyllis Wheatley High School, the jazz jazz music program, that allowed for students there who were from different backgrounds to actually make contact with one another and to begin to fuel a sense of community. In the 1930s, Houston high schools 
or the segregated black high schools began to promote jazz music and began to teach students how to play the music. And this in part came from two high schools, Jack Yates High and Phyllis Wheatley High, which hired professional musicians to come in and teach the students how to play music. And it winds up actually being uh, something that economically helps the communities because you've got these students who now have formal musical training who then, in many cases, grow up to play professionally in orchestras around Houston, and then some of them migrate out of Houston and go to places like Chicago and New York and become professional jazz musicians. So Illinois, Jaquette, Arnett Cobb, Eddie Cleanhead Vinson, uh, some very prestigious jazz performers came from these high schools in Houston. And so what I found is that through these types of cultural events like jazz concerts or playing jazz music in the marching band for the high school wound up being the thing that linked both Creoles and black Texans to the local community. It's what gradually began to lead to an erosion of a line between black and Creole in Fifth Ward. And by that, I don't mean that the groups gave up their identities, right? Creoles are still very proud of being Creole and will tell you that in a heartbeat. But what I mean by that is that there being a strict division between this side is Creole and this side is black eventually began to wear away as these students began to all claim Fifth Ward as their community. And I especially found that with the creation of Zotico music in Fifth Ward, that especially became an identifier for the Fifth Ward community and a way for people in the community to earn money. Uh, Zotico grew out of a form of music in Louisiana that was called La La, which used a button accordion and a rub board to play music that was usually either uh, usually performed with French lyrics. Uh, after the flood and the migration into Houston, Creoles began to blend La La with Texas blues, which had been thriving in Houston since the early 20th century. Uh, you know, you had people like Lightning Hopkins, who had migrated to Houston from Third Ward, uh, from sorry, from Centerville to Third Ward, and who helped establish Houston as a viable blues city. Uh, La La began to mix with blues as Creoles and black Texans made contact. Right, So we're talking about nightclubs and places like Fifth Ward, or it was a Creole tradition to have house parties on Friday nights where people might have fried fish and have uh, local people come and play music there. So traditions began to blend as these groups made more and more contact. By the 50s, there had, a new form of music had emerged that combined the two. And it was a folklorist named Robert Matt McCormick, who created the spelling for Zodico that we now know, Z-Y-D-E-C-O. And it came from a, an old Lala song that was called Les Zodicos en Pasale, which meant the beans aren't salty. And it was a popular <laughs> tune that had been played, I think, since at least the 1930s. And uh, by the 50s, Creoles who lived in Houston weren't necessarily speaking French on a day-to-day -day basis, right? They'd grown up in Houston, gone to Wheatley High School, perhaps. They were speaking English. So knowledge of the phrase, les articles en passe what it translated to or how it was spelled, was being lost over the generations. And people were just referring to it as les articles. 
And then gradually they dropped the L and it was just Zotico. So when we say Zotico, we're actually saying an anglicized version of the word beans. Uh, <laughs> but it was a combination there of blues with Lala. It wasn't the same Lala that they had brought from Louisiana. It had morphed into something urban and something that was very blues-driven. So a lot of performers would play in the 12-bar blues structure, for example. They were singing in English by the 50s. So when McCormick goes to Houston and hears this music, he decides that it should be its own genre. It wasn't exactly blues. It wasn't exactly la-la either. It was something else. And McCormick always meant for that combination of la-la and blues that he called Zotico to refer specifically to the music of Houston, right? And a lot of people, when they hear Zotico or they hear the word, they yeah, immediately think of Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. Right. And so I think Zotico was conceived in Louisiana and born in Houston, is what I say, right? It's because of that migration of Creoles into Houston that made the genre, right? If they had stayed in Louisiana, it wouldn't have developed the way that we, into the Zotico that we know it today. It would have been something different. So Zotico's roots are in Frenchtown. And it's, uh, for what I say is that it grows because of that contact between black Texans and Creoles of color in the city. Um, I want to talk about a particular song about Houston, um, or that at least mentions Houston by the blues great Lead Belly. Uh, he wasn't from Houston, but had some opinions about the police in that in uh, <laughs> the the Houston police. Um, in the song Midnight Special, he sings, "If you ever go to Houston, boy, you better walk right, and you better not squabble, and you better not fight. Basin and Brock will just arrest you. Payton and Boone will carry you down, and you can bet your bottom dollar, oh Lord, you're Sugarland bound." You ever, ever go to Houston? Boy, you better walk right, and you better not walk, and you better not fight. Bass and Brock will arrest you. Payton and Boone will take you down. You're gonna bet your bottom dollar and a change the rebound. Let it be special. That's definitely the closest I've ever come to singing on this podcast. But um, tell me about those lyrics and and about. Jim Crow in Houston and what role police played in enforcing it. Those lyrics, as you said, uh, Lit Dudley is not from Houston, but that song is so very much about the way that the way that race, segregation, and policing all worked in the city. And uh, Lit Dudley most likely heard those names: uh, Boone, Brock, Peyton, the people you mentioned when he either performed in Houston or when he was in prison in Texas and met black Houstonians. All of those are the names of people who were law enforcement officials in the city. Wow. And like actual, their actual names. Their actual names. Uh, for example, the name Boone in Houston could be related to a notorious police officer who patrolled Fourth Ward, which is home to Houston's Freedmanstown. It was the first black community created by former slaves after Reconstruction. Boone was a nickname for a police officer 
who worked there in Fourth Ward, they called him Daniel Boone as a nickname because he was very uh, tall and known to fight, if need be. And, uh, you know, the police officers in Fourth Ward had long been notorious to the local black community. And, in fact, Houston's uh, race riot of 1917 had everything to do with those police officers' relationship to black Houstonians. In Fourth Ward, the police officers, of course, who patrolled the community were white. And they were in many cases, uh, committed to upholding white supremacy. And so Fourth Ward was a sort of thriving black community at the turn of this century. It had a main drag there that was home to black-owned stores and businesses. The first black school in Houston was located in this area. So Freedmanstown was was a point of pride for local black Houstonians. But the white police presence was this constant reminder of white supremacy and was there to constantly remind black Houstonians that they were still inferior, even if they had their own communities, their own businesses, right? And so the Houston riot of 1917 starts because of these issues over uh, police presence in the black community. Uh, One day on August 23rd of 1917, a a black woman got into a public altercation with a white police officer who dragged her out of her house and slapped her in front of the whole neighborhood. And when this happened, there were two black, there was a black soldier who was in the crowd of people watching the altercation. And during World War I, uh, Houston was home to a military base called Camp Logan. And the military sent the 24th Infantry, which was an all-black regiment, to Houston during the war. So one of these black soldiers was present when this altercation happened between the the white police officer and the black woman, and he tried to intervene, thinking that as a soldier during a time of war, that he may have enough status to stop the violence from happening. But the white police officer uh, then pistol whipped the black soldier in front of the crowd. Uh, About three hours later, a different black soldier confronted the white police officer to ask why he had pistol-whipped the other soldier, and this soldier also gets beaten by the police officer. Uh, Word spreads about the violence, and a group of soldiers from Camp Logan decided to strike back at Houston law enforcement. Uh, They mutinied that night, took ammunition from the camp, and marched on the city of Houston in pursuit of the police officers who had caused the problems earlier. Right? It wound up that the one of the police officers involved wound up being killed that night. Right? So this legacy of a violent history between police officers and black Houstonians is something that I found throughout my research. The Lead Belly Song Midnight Special is just one of the examples, you know, and the song specifically mentions, right, if you get into trouble in Houston, these cops will take you down. You're going to end up in prison in Sugarland, right outside of Houston. So there's this long legacy of police violence in these communities. Um, in fact, after the riot, about two weeks later, one of the police officers involved shot another black man in the back, right? So 
when it when people think of Houston and racial violence, there aren't that many examples of high-profile lynchings, for example, that people can point to. Uh, but this history of police brutality is the one that black Houstonians talked about as being the main version of racial violence that they had to contend with on a day-to-day basis. So when the NAACP starts in Houston, it starts in the aftermath of the riot as a way to try to um, get black Houstonians organized. The very first thing they do is try to stamp out police brutality in the community. So uh, when I talk about this to my students here at the University of Arizona, many of them are shocked to know that this topic of police brutality in black communities is such an old one. You know, they always think, oh, well, maybe this is something that just started, that, you know, Black Lives Matter is this new thing, right? But although Black Lives Matter is a newish organization, what they're trying to stop is the same thing that Black Houstonians and many other African Americans across the country were talking about 100 years ago. In terms of the the, um, Camp Logan revolt, can you say a little more about how it played out, how many people died, what the legal consequences were, and how it's been popularly remembered in Houston, if it is remembered much at all. That night, about 16 people died, if I'm remembering the statistic correctly. Uh, The Houston riot, as it was called, though locally some people refer to it as the Camp Logan Mutiny, right, because it involved soldiers. Uh, But I... This was the first riot where the majority of people to die were white instead of black. Because in the early 20th century, the definition of race riot was typically mobs of white people sweeping through black communities. East St. Louis and Oklahoma, I believe. Right. Yes. And, you know, the riot in East St. Louis had just occurred about a month before the Houston riot. So it was all that same summer the first summer that the United States entered World War One, right? And as you mentioned, right, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, there was an Atlanta race riot in the first decade of the 20th century. So, right, when people in the United States heard race riot, it was usually white mobs who led the violence, and typically black people did most of the dying. Houston was a reversal of that, so it was really a shocking event for most Americans who were not accustomed to that narrative playing out. But of course, the black soldiers were armed because they were in the military and they'd been trained to use those weapons, right? So it was a very, very different kind of riot. But of course, the thing that sparked the riot still goes back to something older, right? And it was white supremacist violence against African Americans. Uh, But yes, about 16 people died that night, mostly white. Uh, One person was a Mexican-American man who got killed by a stray bullet, Right, Mexican Americans weren't the target of the violence at all, but one person did die in that case. In terms of the legacy of the riot, uh, Camp Logan eventually gets shut down, and part of the memory of it sort of leaves Houston. Uh, I didn't grow up ever hearing about the riot, certainly never heard of it. I only heard about it when I got to graduate school and read about it in a book that briefly mentioned it in one sentence. And I thought, what's that about? And so I did some research and discovered that it was actually a major controversy back during World War One. In a few cases, there have been black Houstonians who've tried to remember the riot. 
So, for example, there was a play called Camp Logan that was written by a local black woman. But in general, the riot wasn't something that people cared to remember in Houston, right? So the legacy of it sort of died away. And even in the aftermath of the riot uh, in 1917, that summer, in newspapers, you could even see white Houstonians trying to distance themselves from the riot by saying, you know, this isn't us. This only happened because outsiders, these soldiers, came in and instigated this violence. This isn't how our black people behave. Right, exactly. They were saying things like, you know, our Negroes would never do anything like this. In fact, they were running and, and scared. But in reality, I found when I was looking at testimony of people during the courts martial that occurred, there were three. The military held three courts martial following the riot. And uh, one man who testified said that black Houstonians were actually, in some cases, looking out of their windows in Fourth Ward and cheering on the black soldiers as they marched through the city and yelling things like, this is what we call a man, right? Because they felt like the soldiers were standing up for them and going after and retaliating against police brutality. So the idea that black Houstonians were afraid or unconnected to what the soldiers were doing is actually just, you know, an effort to rebrand again after the riot. And uh, one of the one editorial in a Houston newspaper actually said, you know, this is Houston, you know, we're not as bad as Mississippi, but we're not Ohio either, right? So trying to position itself as saying, you know, horrible racial atrocities don't happen here, but at the same time, black people need to know their place. And many of the the revolt the soldiers who revolted were were later executed correct the military held its first court martial of the soldiers who were accused of participating in the riot in december just a few months following the riot and they sentenced 13 of the soldiers involved to death and so 13 were executed immediately following the riot and later about six more, about half a dozen more, were eventually executed, which led to widespread protest from African Americans around the country. Uh, you know, people wrote uh, to the president, they wrote to their congressmen uh, to say that they thought that the executions were a state-sponsored lynching. And the reason for that is because the military didn't get presidential approval before the executions, and at a time of war, you uh, typically needed that presidential uh, approval before you executed a soldier. And so people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells Barnett protested the executions because they said, in some cases, German spies were actually treated better than the soldiers who were involved in the riot. Uh, So after that, Dozens of other soldiers even received uh, prison sentences and were sent to Leavenworth Prison as well. Many I see of from the, the Texas prison. Historical Association, 19 hanged ultimately and 63 um, receiving life sentences in federal prison. Right, right. And many of those soldiers stayed in prison until it, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt pardoned the very last ones, got them out of uh, prison, rather. And so that was, I believe, the late 1930s. So some soldiers spent two decades behind bars as a result. 
being uh, convicted of con- of participating in the riot. Wow. Well, thank you for covering um, so much important history uh, with me. Um, I think it gives some really important context to what people are uh, seeing today. So, um, Tawana Steptoe, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Steptoe is an historian at the University of Arizona and the author of Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. The history of segregation, rooted in slavery and Jim Crow, became a slow-rolling environmental disaster as Houston boomed and became the petrochemical capital of the United States. My next guest is Robert D. Bullard, Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University in Houston, known to many as the father of environmental justice. Robert Bullard, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. How has the unequal geography of Houston, including the environmental inequality, shaped how the hurricane has impacted people of different classes and races? Well, if you look at how Houston is laid out, it's important to understand that Houston is a southern city. And many of the neighborhoods in Houston, uh, as they developed, developed along racial lines and and more recent along class lines. And we can still find uh, that uh, Jim Crow footprint um, today, even though we were talking about uh, something that may have been put in place, you know, 50, 75 years ago. And instead of just being uh, African-Americans that are segregated, uh, you also find uh, today uh, Latinos segregated. Uh, and Houston, if you divide it in half, uh, the eastern eastern half of the city uh, has uh, uh, the, the greatest percentage of, of whites, um, whereas uh, the eastern half uh, has the largest concentration of people of color. If you also understand that not only people are segregated, but also uh, pollution and vulnerability is also segregated, uh, and zip code is still the the most uh, important and potent factor determining um, health and well-being as well as as well as vulnerability, and and so you can see that pattern play out in in Harvey in terms of uh, of which communities. Uh, uh, that were that were hit first uh, in terms of the flooding and in terms of having to be lifted out on rooftops and floated out generally, uh, generally poor people and, and people of color. And when you talk about the toxic contamination and the pollution, uh, it's concentrated on the east side where you have uh, the ship channel and the, and the polluting industries concentrated, but also you have communities of color that are, that are fence lined with these dangerous facilities. So the Harvey was a not only um, a disaster in terms of the flooding, but also a disaster in terms of the environmental uh, contamination and the pollution and the health risks uh, for nearby neighbors and people who are on the fence line. I want to talk about some of the the history behind this. You've uh, written that when you began your research on environmental justice at Texas Southern in 1978. 
Houston was 52.3% white, 27.4% black, 17.6% Hispanic, and 2.7% Asian and other. The government, however, was all white and male. This lack of equitable representation, you write, had consequences. In place of NIMBY, not in my backyard politics, Houston practiced a PIBI, place in blacks' backyard policy. Government and private industry targeted Houston's black neighborhoods for landfills, incinerators, garbage dumps, and garbage transfer stations. Houston is infamous for having no zoning at all, but you write, from the 1920s through the late 1970s, black Houston was unofficially zoned for garbage. That pattern of placing things that other people don't want and unofficially uh, uh, basically having a power structure that that says uh, black communities and communities of color are compatible with garbage and therefore garbage uh, is compatible uh, with uh, with communities of color. That that's we have a term for that. That's called environmental racism. And Invisible Houston, uh, uh, when I wrote it in you know in uh, 1987, uh, we were largely talking about African Americans being invisible because you know the Black Houston uh, community was the largest uh, African American community of any city in the South. There were more than a half million. Uh, black people in Houston when I wrote that book, but they were still uh, invisible. Uh, And that invisibility uh, uh, created vulnerability in terms of not just landfills and incinerators, but also uh, land uses that are are not uh, compatible in terms of residential amenities, lack of grocery stores, lack of parks, lack of green space, lack of those infrastructure, lack of uh, um, uh, adequate flood protection, et cetera. And as you see neighborhoods expand and, and, and develop, uh, and as the Latino population expanded uh, and developed, you start to see that same uh, vulnerability and that same invisibility. You know, uh, Houston is, is uh, nearly, you know, 50% uh, Latino. But when you talk about uh, we're the most, one of the most diverse cities in the, in the country um, in terms of uh, ethnicity, but when it comes to uh, diversity in terms of power, political power and economic power, uh, it stops. And that diversity no, is no longer, you know, applicable to, to that power and, and decision making. And that's where I think uh, we have to really make sure when the money, when the billions of dollars flow into Houston for, for the cleanup and, and recovery, we have to make sure that we don't uh, rebuild on inequality that pre- uh, uh, existed before the storm, and we have we can't uh, allow uh, recovery uh, redlining to occur, where money goes to where money uh, money follows money, and we have to make sure that flood protection and and increased uh, community resilience uh, uh, is actually uh, something that all communities uh, have uh, priority and have access to, and that's how we uh, develop our equitable uh, plans for for recovery. We got to fight for that because as I said, Houston is still um, a Southern city and like New Orleans after Katrina, uh, communities have to fight for uh, a fair share of the dollars and fight for uh, making sure that, uh, that uh, communities get their, uh, uh, their fair share when it comes to the good stuff. Cause for too long, many of our communities, uh, low income and communities of color have had more than their fair share of the, 
locally unwanted land uses are Lulu's and the bad stuff. We want the healthy stuff now. You first encountered the issue of environmental injustice, if I have it right, in 1978 when you got involved in a fight over um, the Whispering Pines Sanitary Landfill. Can you tell me about that fight and how it changed or helped develop your thinking about environmental racism and injustice? I came to Houston, uh, my wife and I came in 1976, and I was a, an assistant professor at Texas Southern University in sociology department. And two years after out of graduate school, I was asked to collect uh, data for, for the lawsuit that she had filed, uh, suing the city of Houston, Harris County, and the state of Texas, and this uh, waste disposal company. And uh, charging uh, the companies with, uh, and the city and the planning of siting this landfill in, this, in the middle of this middle-income suburban uh, African-American community. Nothing out there in, in Northwood Manor, Northeast Houston, except trees, uh, houses, and black people. And, and the idea of putting a landfill in the middle of this, this middle-income community was, was just something this it, it just didn't make sense. And so I was asked to collect data for that lawsuit, and I had 10 students in my research masters class, and here at TSU, and we began to uh, develop a methodology and design the study. And there were no studies like this. And and we uh, began to work on this issue of environmental discrimination. This is long. This is 1978, 79. Before there was an environmental justice movement, and uh, the case was Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation. That was the first lawsuit to challenge environmental discrimination using civil rights. And what we said is that 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 community is not uh, the place to put a landfill that is not compatible, even though Houston didn't have zoning, it's not compatible with residential areas. 85% of the residents own their homes. It was all housing, uh, houses, no apartments, no, it was not a ghetto. It was a middle-income African-American community. And in that study, what we found is that five out of five of the city-owned landfills from the 30s and up until 1978 were located in black neighborhoods. Uh, six out of eight of the city-owned incinerators were located in black neighborhoods. Three out of four of the privately-owned landfills in Houston were located in, in black neighborhoods. And so from the 30s up until 1978, uh, 82% of all the garbage being dumped in Houston was being dumped in, in black communities, uh, even though blacks in Houston only made up 25% of the population. We said, aha, that is a pattern that is not random, and there has to be something uh, to this because uh, uh, if you don't have zoning, somebody's deciding where to put these things. And and in that case, uh, these are decisions that were made by uh, by mostly white males, uh, and decisions uh, that were made that we saw was discriminatory. And that's how I got started on this. Uh, as I said, I was drafted into doing this, and and not uh, something that I just. Uh, you know, uh, decided to do. It was something that that I had to do. The things like landfills and incinerators are the sorts of polluting projects that that tend to be cited disproportionately in poor neighborhoods of color in any city. But in Houston, you have this added issue of it being the petrochemical capital of the country. How does that shape the environmental injustice in the city? Well, if you look at, as I said, if you look at the whole idea of where 
the the greatest concentrations of industries that that create uh, environmental hazards and the greatest amount of pollution, whether it's petrochemical plants, refineries, or whether it's other kinds of of facilities, they're concentrated on the eastern half of the city, or they're concentrated on the east side. Uh, and and so when you talk about uh, all communities uh, are not created equal, there are some that are more equal than others. If you are are trying to map and and plot where these facilities are, and then overlay uh, race and class, uh, race and class uh, really map uh, neatly with uh, the location of these facilities as well as vulnerability. These are the areas that historically have flooded. These are the areas that historically have had uh, uh, the polluting facilities. These are the areas that have fewer uh, amenities such as parks and green space and full-service grocery stores and et cetera. And so um, the, if you talk about where are the hazardous waste facilities are located, uh, where are the other kinds of uh, facilities that are located that that people say, uh, 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 I don't want it in my neighborhood, uh, put it somewhere else. That somewhere else uh, generally happens to be uh, in, in communities of color. And so Harvey has really shown that that the the footprint of the of the environmental uh contamination uh problem is not random it's not evenly distributed it's just it's concentrated in those areas uh that uh that somehow uh uh the powers that be decide it's okay to uh to concentrate so much uh industry in one geographic area and those areas uh uh over a period of time have have become sacrifice zones. They have become areas that people know that that that's where uh, the largest you know concentration of uh, pollution. And if something happens in terms of an explosion, accident, or or uh, facility uh, is shut down and 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 emissions are are released, like what happened with Harvey, it's over a million pounds of of emissions uh, uh, were released uh, because of um, shutdowns of of these refineries and and accidents have occurred well you should talk about the explosion of the chemical of that chemical plant it's it's on the eastern uh, quadrant of the city and so of the of the of the region and so when we talk about uh, environmental discrimination and um, outdoor and residential apartheid it's very clear that 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 you can map uh, all the things that that somehow make communities healthy in terms of green space and parks and jogging trails and, and all bicycle lanes and all of that. And you can also map the, the negative things or the things that, uh, that people don't want. And, and, and those things that people don't want, it's not random and, and low income communities and communities of color of every income level, uh, get more than their fair share of, of the, um, environmental threats and environmental stressors. Uh, we say that's an injustice and we say that's, that's immoral, unethical, and it should be illegal. And a lot of the, the impacts is showing up in terms of health outcomes. And, and so we're not only fighting an environmental justice, uh, issue, we also dealing with public health, uh, issue. Now, Whispering Pines in the, in the seventies was cited for, a middle-class black neighborhood, but is there often a class component at play as well? Yes. You know, race and class are intertwined uh, in, in, in terms of environmental uh, challenges that, that many communities face. But most of the studies 
a disproportionate number of the studies. Large share of the studies show that race uh, trumps class. And uh, uh, the, the two professors, sociologists out of Colorado, found that that African Americans who make uh, fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year uh, are more likely to be uh, to live in neighborhoods that are more polluted than whites who make ten thousand dollars a year. And you you may ask why is that? It's because of residential segregation and housing discrimination. Uh, and so people of color are more likely to breathe dirty air, dirtier air, uh, because of where they live at every income level. And so when we talk about uh, the idea of of um, income, middle income, and affluent uh, people of color, uh, uh, we're more likely to live in areas that that uh, ordinarily uh, white people would would be able to escape uh, because of um, uh, being able to uh, buy into neighborhoods or move to neighborhoods where they don't face uh, discrimination. And in addition, you you find redlining, racial redlining, also. Uh, 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 contributing to uh, the 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 impact, the the spatial impact of where where things uh, are, are placed, and and the and this whole idea that 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 economic um, uh, redlining and racial redlining uh, can can also uh, impact uh, what kinds of of quality neighborhoods uh, that that individuals are able to uh, reside in. And so we have not, you know, escaped uh, this whole idea that that uh, if you have enough if you have enough money, you can you can uh, live in, uh, anywhere and everywhere. Uh, that that's that's true in some cases, but in many cases, uh, middle income African American and Latino communities have to uh, are or adjacent to poor communities, and 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 oftentimes uh, have to uh, deal with some of the same uh, issues as. Uh, as our low-income brothers and sisters, uh, in terms of lack of residential amenities, as well as having an uh, an oversaturation of of polluting facilities and health-threatening facilities, we should obviously blame environmental injustice on big business and the politicians who do their bidding. But mainstream environmental groups, largely led by white and affluent people, have also played a role in this. In 1990, environmental justice leaders sent a letter to the Big Ten environmental and conservation groups, groups like the Sierra Club and Environmental Defense Fund, and charged them, you write, with elitism, classism, and paternalism. What was the problem then, and have things changed much since? Well, you know, the the letter that was written in, in, in the 90s basically it challenged the environmental movement to to diversify and become uh, and to reflect uh, the 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 way that uh, America looked and um, that was then and this is now uh, we've made some progress but for the most part the environmental movement uh, environmental conservation uh, organizations uh, are still uh, primarily white uh, middle class uh, they 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 have made. Uh, uh, some of them uh, have made more progress than others because I don't want a broad brush. Uh, all of the green groups are not uh, are not the same. They're not homogeneous, and you can't we can't generalize. But for the most part, um, uh, these groups ha- have not uh, made enough um, uh, attempts and progress, and 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 the results speak for for themselves. 
um, the, the, the other part of not just diversifying their staffs and their boards and their agendas, but also we have been in the environmental justice movement, we have been advocating for uh, diversifying the funding uh, that's, that, that, that goes to uh, support um, uh, uh, environmental issues that, that, uh, that disproportionately impact uh, poor people and people of color. And, and diversifying the monies that go to uh, people of color, uh, non-governmental organizations and, and community-based organizations. Um, for example, in, in 2001, uh, the, the green groups got, uh, people of color only got about 4.7, 4.5% of the money uh, going to uh, deal with environmental issues. Uh, 20 years later, um, uh, that that number had uh, was was only about 15 percent, and and today um, uh, the green groups still get uh, they they still get the the lion's share of the monies uh, from the foundations and funders doing this work. Uh, you know, 15 percent from up from um, up from five percent is 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 uh, is progress, but you know, people of color are are, are make up. Uh, you know, almost you know, 35, 37 percent of the U.S. population, and growing. And by 2042, people of color will be the majority of uh, of people in this country. And so, uh, what we have been saying all along is that is that the green groups and environmental organization, conservation organization, organizations should not wait for 2042 to diversify until you know when the country is majority uh, people of color. We need to be uh, diversifying now. Uh, so that uh, so that we are preparing for that uh, 2042, we need to diversify, and 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 they need to uh, realize and stand with us when we talk about funding uh, grassroots, um, uh, community-based, people of color, uh, environmental and conservation organizations, and and so that we can work together in a collaborative uh, collaborative uh, framework. And uh, we're doing some of that, uh, but not enough. Uh, not enough has been. Uh, has been uh, uh, done to 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 make sure that we uh, are going uh, along with uh, how this country is changing and and bringing on new leaders and and uh, ensuring that our young people and young people of color are are moving into these fields and and assuming the leadership. Uh, and Harvey uh, has shown us that when we talk about these environmental issues on the ground and where these issues are concentrated. Uh, it makes a whole lot of sense uh, to make sure that the, in Houston that the, the environmental uh, justice groups and the people of color organizations and institutions that are doing this work, uh, we need to be funded. Uh, we need to have resources to do it because, because we've been doing great work without much money, but, but these challenges are great. And therefore, uh, we need to have um, uh, the kinds of collaborations that can support this work long term. Uh, this is not a one-year, four-year project. I don't think it will be. I think it will be a long-term project, and we need, you know, the commitments from those uh, organizations and from those funders that can that can take us over this marathon, uh, and, and it will be a marathon. It seems to me that that same inattention to the socioeconomic justice dimensions of environmentalism has also had a really negative effect in poor white rural communities, places like West Virginia, where the lack of attention to the socioeconomic 
context from big green groups and, and establishment liberals has really abetted the conservative business agenda of painting environmentalism as this thing pitting or ordinary people um, against these liberal elites instead of what it really should be portrayed as, which is a, a fight that most people have a stake in because we we live on this planet and that the current status quo really serves a small small number of, of, of very wealthy people. Yeah, the, the idea of environmental justice, and we we were able to break through that uh, that wall, you know, um, um, 15, uh, 20 years ago when we were working with uh, our brothers and sisters in Appalachia and in West Virginia and uh, on the issue of, for example, of mountaintop uh, re- removal in terms of the mining and and what's happening there with with so much devastation in in terms of air quality and water quality and and the idea that uh, their their whole environment is being uh, destroyed um, and people are getting sick and so uh, these are we're basically talking about uh, working class uh, white people and uh, and we say we will fight uh, and uh, just as hard to make sure that that uh, those communities in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky are not poisoned, and their rivers are not poisoned, their air is not poisoned. We'll fight just as hard as as we'd fight if we were talking about Houston or or Memphis or New Orleans, and the and and to and to have that breakthrough uh, for us uh, to have individuals talking about environmental justice because there was confusion early on, and the confusion was being put out there uh, to to uh, somehow uh, divide. Uh, our different groups and uh, along racial and ethnic lines, uh, and and there this misinformation uh, that was being spread that the environmental justice movement is only talking about environmental racism, and we say no, that's not necessarily true. We say what you have in West Virginia with this with this coal uh, with the strip mining on steroids, mountaintop removal is environmental injustice. Uh, it may not be environmental racism, but it is environmental injustice, and injustice is an injustice. And so what we have been trying to do over these years is to is to really uh, sharpen our message and to uh, get people to understand that that air quality uh, is not a good air is not a privilege it's a right because most of us don't say next Tuesday I'm not going to breathe I mean and, and having access to clean water and and access to uh, healthy foods and all of that that kinds of uh, of things we say those are w- things worth fighting for access to uh, you know affordable uh, and efficient uh, uh, transit uh, these are issues that that resonate across you know race and class lines and 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 city uh, as well as rural areas and so when we talk about you know bringing in you know the rural areas and the suburbs and and cities uh, because you know when we talk about air sheds and watersheds uh, uh, problems of, of um, uh, uh, environmental degradation, really it doesn't stop at the city limits or the county line. You know, you know, a lot of these things cut across uh, city and county and are, and are regional in, in nature and therefore will will uh, require uh, various jurisdictions and various organization leaders and various sectors to, to work together, including you know, our environmental groups, our faith-based groups, you know, civic clubs, volunteer associations, and uh, educational institutions, and that's what we have been trying to do over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years to get 
for example, our historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, uh, which are uh, 90% of them are located in the South, to work with our community groups and form those partnerships, community university partnerships, to work on these issues and have our students work uh, with our faculty to work on uh, issues uh, that are common to to uh, to to our our region, and and because many of our students come from these very communities, and therefore we want to you know give back, and uh, we're steadily building and growing uh, new leaders, and and that's how we expand our movement, that's how we grow our movement, and that's how we create this uh, intergenerational uh, movement that's uh, built to last. Robert Bullard, thank you so much. My pleasure. Robert D. Bullard is a distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University in Houston, known to many as the father of environmental justice. The segregation that Steptoe and Bullard discussed is not just a relic of history. In fact, it is actively supported by government policy today. My final guest is John Hennenberger, an expert in equitable disaster recovery and co-director of Texas Housers, an affordable housing advocacy group in Austin. John Henneberger, welcome to The Dig. Thanks. Houston is one of the most diverse big cities, by, by at least one measure, the most diverse, but it's also an extraordinarily segregated one. Um, black people first experienced this segregation than large numbers of Mexican immigrants. Can you lay out the segregated landscape in the city and metro and how it came about? Sure, I can try. Um, I think a lot of people who work uh, on looking at uh, the situation in Houston sort of roll their eyes when public officials proclaim it to be the most diverse city in the country. The uh, It is diverse overall and is highly diverse overall. But uh, when you get down to the neighborhood level, Houston's a really segregated place. Segregation began early in Houston with the the, the movement, uh, particularly accelerating in the uh, after the Civil War of African Americans moving into the um, the city itself, and they were segregated in areas in the Fifth Ward and the Fourth Ward, which were areas near uh, the rail yards and uh, on a a road that led to the plantation district of Texas. It was an area out to the west of Houston known as the Sugar Bowl. It was a sugar plantations out that area. The San Felipe Road led from that area into the west of Houston, and early African Americans settled um, in that area that became known as the San Felipe District, later became part of the fourth ward of the city. Those neighborhoods were historically um, never provided the level of public infrastructure in terms of streets, uh, sewer systems, uh, access to uh, the municipal water system uh, that the white neighborhoods in the other wards were provided. Um, The result was uh, the establishment of those neighborhoods uh, as really racially distinct areas uh, that were inferior in terms of the uh, in terms of the quality of life in those areas, 
uh, with the the coming of the Mexican Revolution and the the uh, the migration of uh, of uh, Mexican American population into the area, particularly to war, work in the uh, in the port of Houston. Uh, it was a the port of Houston was a big uh, uh, cotton shipping uh, operation. Um, the uh, the brand, the cotton compresses and the cotton warehouses um, sought to leverage um, uh, Mexican American labor against African American labor in those industries, and um, the uh, Mexican American population grew fairly rapidly in the wake of the Mexican Revolution in that work and other uh, other labor type of occupations in the the second ward of the city, the area immediately east of the downtown. So uh, those were the orig- original origins of the um, communities of color within the city of Houston. Simultaneous with the uh, the in-migration of populations and the later greater in-migration of African Americans uh, during World War II into Houston, um, there was also the establishment of a number of, of uh, outer ring settlements, particularly of African-American uh, neighborhoods uh, around the city of Houston. Uh, they were, for all intents and purposes, what on the Texas-Mexico border we today call colonias. They were informal settlements outside of the jurisdiction of the city which were uh, generally established uh, as uh, subdivisions that were owned by whites who were sold on contracts for deed, land sales contracts to African Americans, uh, who then had to build themselves because they were unable to obtain, of course, mortgage credit or other things, other financial resources to buy homes. They were, um, they were forced to build for themselves uh, their homes, uh, often using what's the equivalent of a payday loan with lumber yards in order to acquire high interest rate loans to build, to, to buy materials to actually build homes. Those outer ring neighborhoods were largely annexed into the city of Houston in the 1950s and the 1960s. And one of the largest uh, annexation uh, uh, expansions of that any city has ever done the city of houston dramatically increased through annexation in that period of time under the state of texas's liberal annexation laws and those communities and that's the sort of annexation that that's the sort of annexation that's more typical out west but that's pretty rare um on the east coast yes yes yeah it is i mean you know and and houston was not ringed in at the time by other uh, uh, jurisdictions. So, you know, this was, these were basically, it was surra- Houston was surrounded by large unincorporated areas, but there had been many of these, um, or a number of these settlements of African-American population that had sprung up out there. They were um, informal settlements, so the streets were often, uh, the streets were not paved, the, there was no drainage system provided for them, a lot of them didn't have uh, potable water systems. Uh, they relied on well water. Um, some of them didn't have electricity. And uh, those areas were annexed by the city in this massive annexation bins that the city went 
went into in the 1950s and the 1960s. And uh, the city of Houston never bothered to getting around to dealing with that lack of public infrastructure in those settlements. And uh, many of the areas that we see today still have open ditch drainage and that have uh, that experience frequent flooding are uh, are those neighborhoods which were founded uh, outside the city limits back then annexed into the city but the city never bothered to provide uh, basic levels of what we consider to be essential public infrastructure and during this period Jim Crow ruled in Houston. So there was formal residential segregation in place. Jim Crow was uh, severe in in Houston. The police force in Houston was uh, extremely racist and known for its uh, brutal treatment uh, within the African American wards in Houston. Um, we just passed uh, at the end of August the 100th anniversary of the what what is called locally as the uh, the Camp Logan Massacre. But what that was was the uh, Black 24th Infantry Regiment during World War One had been uh, deployed to Houston, to the outskirts of the city, to establish a training camp for um, people inducted into the uh, United States Army. It was a training camp. And they were basically the provost guard for the construction of that camp the racist treatment of the soldiers and the uh, racist treatment of residents of the African-American Fourth Ward that was witnessed by these soldiers, many of whom came from parts of the country which, where Jim Crow was not as, as, uh, as violently prosecuted as it was in Houston, uh, resulted in a, uh, a group of African-American soldiers taking up their arms, leaving camp, and uh, and a uh, basically a gun battle ensued between the soldiers and the police constabulary and uh, the uh, the some of the white citizens in Houston. Uh, there were a number of deaths as a result of that, and it was it was played in the newspapers as a race riot. And it was indeed uh, you know a it was indeed caused by. Um, by the racist treatment that uh, that that was practiced widely in Houston at the time. How was the racial segregation of housing maintained both by government policy and by private practice through the Jim Crow era and and thereafter? African Americans and Hispanics were barred from moving into white areas by uh, a essential agreement among the white population that it just wouldn't be allowed. Uh, homes were not sold to people. Uh, people would be subject to uh, police action and harassment. And essentially, very few people, if any, actively challenged that color line on an individual basis. Um, so convention maintained Jim Crow in its early years. Uh, with the... Um, Moving into the 1920s and the 19-teens, 1920s, in the wake of the Camp Logan Massacre, uh, the uh, the use of racial restrictive covenants became ubiquitous in the Houston area. Um, subdivisions, white subdivisions, 
um, employed uh, deed restrictions. As the city began to grow uh, in order to prevent uh, the sale of residential property to uh, non-Caucasians, uh, non-Caucasians, uh, and uh, also prevented the sale to uh, to Mexicans in many cases and to Jews in some cases, but always to people to to African Americans. And these covenants are explicit racial restrictions, actually written into or attached to the deed. Correct? Yeah, the, these are. Uh, these are racial restrictions that are either attached to the subdivision plat or the deed, most often to the, the deed, the conveyance. And they were deemed by the Supreme Court in the late 1940s to be unenforceable as a result of action that uh, then NAACP uh, head, uh, Legal Defense Fund head Thurgood Marshall filed before the Supreme Court. But they remain present in, in deeds over much of the city of Houston, although they're not legally enforceable, um, you know, they just represent kind of a monument to how pervasive uh, the system of Jim Crow racial segregation was in the city. In Houston, they were also ubiquitous, really all over the country. They were, but Houston uh, Houston is a unusual place in that it has no zoning. Uh, and so uh, uh, zoning laws and um, restrictions about uh, that have to do with building standards and building codes were also used in other places in order to confine lower income and working class people of color uh, to particular parts of town. Um, Houston did not have that, and Houston basically enforces its seg- enforced its segregation through this uh, this very strong system of, of of uh, racial deed restrictions. Huh. That's fascinating. So there's really a distinction to be drawn between how segregation was maintained in, say, Chicago, Detroit, or New York uh, metro areas and, and how it was kept in place in Houston. There is. There, uh, you know, the, the complexity and the other tools that people who wanted to maintain segregation had in other places uh, you know, we're not present in Houston uh, because they had did not have the it did not have those zoning laws to manipulate to steer the population and to confine the population. So Houston's generally libertarian approach to development meant that they had a more libertarian approach to racial segregation as well. It was left to organized white initiative. Well, I don't think I, I wouldn't call Houston libertarian in, uh, in in that sense. I think you know on the if you look at it, um, you know, an outsider looking at it might regard that as as libertarian. But you know, there were there are both social conventions and uh, and uh, things like these deed restrictions and the application of police power and other things, which uh, are are uh, social engineering for a racist end uh, that I think that the city has employed historically, in order to reach the really very high levels of racial segregation that are present today. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not uh, buying the libertarianism at its face value by any means. I'm uh, thinking to Rand Paul's, um, I think, waffling over the Civil Rights Act because he believed that it violated the private right of people to (laughs) make choices about who they serve. 
in their business, which I think is demonstrates that libertarianism on a has this kind of pristine philosophical face, but it tends to obscure organized violence and exclusion and segregation as that are that always seem to be its underpinnings. There, there's always other. If you scratch below the surface of this, uh, you know this is uh, often when race is involved, it's uh, there's much more going on than is immediately apparent. Um, and that certainly has been historically the case in Houston. And you can't discount the fact that, um, that uh, social norms, employer uh, actions and other things like that were actively used to, you know, to steer uh, people into, into into having to live in particular areas and and the effect of having to uh, the effect of this Jim Crow segregation on uh, its victims is is really very pronounced and you see it today in Houston if you drive through uh, parts of the Fifth Ward if you drive through uh, parts of uh, the South Side of Houston neighborhoods like Sunnyside and and uh, South Union then what you see is uh, immediately the the manifestations of this are uh, open ditch drainage, for example. 88% of the open ditch drainage in Houston, which is quite pervasive, there's a lot of open ditch drainage in Houston, uh, meaning bar ditches by the side of the road that collect water. There's no engineered stormwater system that puts collects stormwater through storm sewers and pipes the water out to a safe distance and discharges it. All the stormwater collects locally where it rains on And just on the becomes street. this fed, fetid... Sets in ditches. Fetid, stagnant yeah. water. Yeah, and, and then provides stagnant water, and which provokes, produces other problems that you know we're aware of, like the presence of mosquito-borne illnesses and like Zika and dengue fever and, and a variety, West Nile and a variety of other problems. But anyway... Um, you know, you see this inequality, you see the effects of, of this segregation on these neighborhoods in the fact that 88% of the um, open-ditch drainage system is in neighborhoods of color in the city of Houston. And uh, you see it in the fact that the sidewalk systems are largely non-existent in many low-income neighborhoods, despite the fact that's the high, that's, those are the neighborhoods where the highest percentage of people don't have access to private transportation. You see, uh, uh, you commonly see uh, people in wheelchairs riding their wheelchairs, electric wheelchairs, or pushing their regular wheelchairs on uh, streets that have big open ditch drainage ditches next to them, no sidewalks, and that are uh, streets that were originally, that, that the only difference from when they were created originally as high-topped, high-center-topped streets that sloped down to the drainage ditches or the fact that the city came out years ago and squirted some asphalt on top of them. So people in wheelchairs compete with cars in, uh, you know, in order to get to the store and, and the like. It's, uh, it's a really remarkable, you know, I would, I would, uh, I'd say that, Houston kind of reminds me, I've grown up in the, in the South, in Texas, and lived here all of my life. And I'm very, you know, the, the image of the, uh, the small town with the other side of the tracks, 
the African-American community on the other side of the tracks where there's um, the streets aren't paved or the streets are poorly paved and maintained, where there's no drainage, where the uh, no sidewalks, where uh, it lies in the low-lying area, the part of town that floods when it rains, all that type of thing. Houston, in many ways, in the inner, in the central city part, the African-American neighborhoods look like those small southern towns on the other side of the tracks. And the cities treated them that way uh, by excluding uh, the provision of public infrastructure uh, from them. Uh, separate and unequal is ubiquitous in those neighborhoods in Houston. Is it fair to say that Houston's unplanned sprawl both facilitates this segregation and also exacerbates its impacts? I don't know. These patterns grew up, these patterns of failing to treat minority neighborhoods, failing to treat African-American and Hispanic neighborhoods, neighborhoods of color equally, is, a, is, is it was cooked over a long period of time. Um, the interaction of the suburbs and the sprawl um, you know what, what? One thing it did allow is it allowed um, it allowed people who had accumulated enough money to move out and to be able to afford to buy a home outside of those neighborhoods. So I think I think the biggest impact of the sprawl has been to uh, allow the emptying out of the middle class of these neighborhoods, uh, these older neighborhoods of color in the city. Um, and that has diminished their political power and their ability to demand remediation of the lack of infrastructure and the chronic flooding and, and the like. So to me, that's the, that's the biggest social impact of the sprawl. Now, you know, there's no doubt that there's also sort of an engineering effect here that um, the sprawl has created uh, much more rapid runoff and a lot more water going into the bayous, which drain the city. And uh, those that population out on the periphery of the city, um, you know, is generating a lot more runoff a lot faster and putting it in the bayous that eventually flow through neighborhoods of color on its way to um, the bay, uh, Galveston Bay and the, and the tributaries, the tributaries that carry water into the, into the Gulf. Um, so uh, I guess I would say that the, um, that these older inner city minority neighborhoods have paid the price of that sprawl by having to watch the water that's generated from that sprawl, flow through them, and sometimes flow over them. It seems like one other effect would be job sprawl in terms of when you have a larger metropolitan area with large amounts of segregation, poor people of color are more likely to live even farther away from where the jobs are. Yeah, there's there's been an emptying out. The jobs have moved into uh, a number of, of nodes uh, fairly far out uh, from the these older ward sort of neighborhoods, yeah. 
and uh, exurban office park yeah zones. uh the energy corridor they call it the medical center district they call it you can't get to them well there is a public transportation system and it's getting slowly better in houston uh but uh most people rely on private transportation which of course uh you know if you're poor uh yeah, that that becomes a, an additional burden on top of rent. Uh, the National Income Housing Coalition, by the way, just did a study called the Gap Report that's on their website, and they looked at major metropolitan areas around the United States and the shortage of of affordable and available housing for people at different income levels. Houston metro area, as I recall, it's uh, there are eighteen. Uh, affordable and available units for every hundred households in the Houston metropolitan area for families who we categorize as extremely low income or those families who earn basically 30% of median family income or less. Uh, and those are people who, uh, that would be like a two worker household with a minimum wage job or, you know, somebody on a SSI. Uh, benefits or a retired person uh, with minimum social security, uh, you know, a janitor, uh, the like. And Houston is full of of, of people who earn um, that type of service wage level scale. And this level of shortage of affordable housing for the poor is is really extreme in in houston's and and much of the housing which exists and is available and affordable at that income level is is in is in very poor condition and now a lot of it is the result of hurricane harvey has been uh has been flooded and lost i i don't want to represent that the the phenomena of segregation is only an old ward inner city problem either in houston um one of the neighborhoods which is chronically flooded is a neighborhood called Greenspoint, which is um, an area that was probably annexed in, I would guess, the 60s or the 70s. Uh, cheap apartments uh, built in an uncontrolled manner, highly dense, some of them actually built in the flood way, not just the flood plain, not just the area where FEMA says it's likely to flood, but some of these apartments were built and still stand or and now stand flooded again in areas that are actually the flood conveyances, the the big drainage easements and ditches that exist out there incredibly. Um, And so uh, we've also seen areas um, on the southwest side of the city where large concentrations of uh, cheaply built apartments were constructed in the 1970s uh, during an oil boom where uh, Katrina evacuees were settled by the city who moved in the uh, to the tune of, a, I believe, a couple hundred thousand uh, folks into that area. And uh, those are areas which also have suffered from flooding and they have, uh, they have uh, become, in essence, uh, under-resourced, uh, urban neighborhoods that have chronic problems with poor performing schools, uh, higher rates of crime, uh, and a variety of, 
a variety of other problems that are sort of modern construction. These were not areas that were created as a result of of, of uh, Jim Crow era um, racial discriminatory covenants, but were actually sort of created by economic uh, considerations, uh, you know, in the post-civil rights era. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. Another factor behind segregation that I know you've worked on a lot that we haven't spoken about yet is publicly subsidized affordable housing and how that's been historically concentrated in poor black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Um, And there continues to be pretty intense fights about that up to the present day. Um, If you could tell me a little bit about that history and about the recent fight over the Fountain View development. Well, all but one of the public housing developments in the city of Houston is located in a area of extreme concentration of uh, of uh, people of color and um, high poverty uh, that's a was a deliberate decision which was made by the housing authority in the city housing authority has a long and uh, I'm sorry public housing has a long and contentious history of, of in in the city of Houston um, there was a uh, originally a uh, de jure uh, decision about segregation made in Houston. There were um, African American de- designated developments, Hispanic designated developments, and white designated developments. And the city of Houston and the Houston Housing Authority have worked together over the years to um, manipulate the designation of those public housing units for different ethnic groups in order to effectuate the the and to maintain the segregation of of people of color in different parts of town, or in one case, particularly the case of Allen Parkway Village in the Fourth Ward, the city uh, worked to um, to basically to gentrify an area by tearing down uh, and uh, converting to uh, more elderly housing and uh, the uh, that public housing development in a, in a part of a of a gentrification sc- scheme that um that uh destroyed the uh one of the historic uh centers of african american population in the city so the city has used uh the its powers to uh, uh it, the public housing to uh to steer uh the the popula- the the population of people of color around to different areas um most recently um uh, the uh, city of Houston received under after Hurricane Ike hit the city and flooded some of the public housing developments. It received an allocation of public resources to rebuild some of that public housing and uh, proposed uh, to uh, 
basically to rebuild all of that public housing back in the same uh, heavily segregated, high levels of 40% poverty type neighborhoods. Um, we objected to that along with our uh, some of the community leaders that we work with in uh, the Houston community and suggested that the city of Houston needed to put at least one public housing development outside of these areas of concentrated poverty near uh, a school that was high performing and near a job center on the west side of Houston. That happened to be a majority white neighborhood. Uh, that project, which was known as the Fountain View development, was only able to be proposed because the Houston Housing Authority actually owned the site as its offices. Um, and so the Housing Authority proposed to demolish its offices and replace it with a 239-unit apartment development, which would be mixed income and would make some units available for public housing residents. In Houston... Uh, I'll take it the, the affluent um, white people in the neighborhood welcomed the development with open They went arms. nuts. Uh, and I have, I've, I've been doing this work for coming up on 40 years, and I have never... I never thought I in I never thought I would ever again see stuff that I saw in the early 70s about the uh there were more than 500 people packed in a school auditorium and they were catcalling, shouting, hollering, going crazy. Um the um our Houston co-director Chrishell Pillay um spoke against this project. I believe she was the only African I know she was the only African American person who stood up in the course of many hours of, of hearings on this issue. And she received quite a bit of abuse from uh, cat calls and threats and had to be escorted to her car out of the building after the thing was over. It was chilling. And um, what was especially disturbing about this is that uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner made a decision to withdraw the pub, the city's support from that development in response to that outcry, um, and uh, as a result, uh, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in late 2016 launched a uh, fair housing and civil rights investigation of the city's actions with regard to the segregation of subsidized housing, and issued a um, a finding against. Um, the city and the mayor uh, regarding violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Title VI of that law, which uh, provides that federal that local administering government agencies who are using federal funds may not deprive people of the benefits of those funds based upon their race and the. HUD found uh, and cited in a extensively documented finding the the facts around this situation, the facts around the long-term segregation of of HUD-funded subsidized housing in Houston, and ordered the city to uh, to address that. Uh, that those findings were left pending at the end of the previous uh, Obama administration and have not been. Uh, there's been no resolution of those findings yet under the current administration. Are you worried that a HUD 
overseen by Ben Carson um, won't exactly be interested in the government taking energetic action to ensure that public housing does not facilitate racial segregation? Well, yes, I would say that I, you know, I, I think I think civil rights law and fair housing law is a pretty settled matter. And this is a this is a legal matter in which uh, career attorneys within HUD and the Department of Justice looked at what uh, has been happening in the city of Houston and made a uh, a formal determination and finding of a violation. It would be unprecedented if somebody attempted to overturn or somehow uh, uh, back off of that. I don't even know how you do it, but it, you know, it does. I'm concerned, like everybody else, about what this administration is going to do. Secretary Carson has spoken uh, on the record during his presidential campaign in a critical way about of, of fair housing. Um, and yet he's been uh, seems to have been fairly careful and hasn't said much uh, since he's uh, been HUD secretary with regards to uh, how he's going to enforce the law. HUD is designated uh, under the Fair Housing Act of 1968 as the as the lead enforcement agency for that landmark civil rights uh, law. And, you know, I I trust that that very important vital legacy of of the civil rights struggle uh it would not be it would not be abandoned we just don't know uh we we don't know there's there's no resolution of this fountain view situation and again if you can't get if you can't get one public housing development to be located outside of a of a high poverty, racially segregated neighborhood in the nation's fourth largest city, then you got something really wrong going on. Houston has also been found to have extremely high levels of class segregation Mm -hmm. and gated affluent communities are everywhere Mm -hmm. in the metro area. What role does class segregation play in comparison to, or maybe better put in interaction with racial segregation? Let me, let me say that the studies have shown that Houston is one of the most uh, economically segregated uh, metropolitan areas in the country. Texas cities in general rank pretty high on the level of uh, economic segregation. Uh, that may be uh, a factor in that might be the uh, the rapid development of the growth of these cities and the way that um, subdivisions tend to be created as economically homogeneous uh, developments more and more. And the fact that older transitional neighborhoods where you might have a mixture of economic of folks on economic basis don't exist as much. They have a tendency, those older areas have a tendency to be either just uh, deteriorate and uh, be occupied by the poor or be, uh, scraped and redeveloped and occupied and gentrified by the rich. Uh, so I would say that the, ec- the economic segregation definitely has, creates problems in many of the older uh, historical 
uh, neighborhoods of color within the city because people who uh, people move to new subdivisions, particularly new peripheral subdivisions, even outside the city into bedroom communities. Mayor Turner talks about people moving out to the lands and their cities called Pearland and Sugarland and whatnot. They, a lot of them end in the word L-A-N-D. And um, that really represents, uh, there's been a wholesale movement of people of color, of middle class, and certainly of upper class, out of these historical neighborhoods and into uh, these suburban uh, areas where there's newer housing, better housing, and the like. And of course, this is a very logical decision that people make because uh, there's the city has essentially failed to provide infrastructure, fails to provide uh, appropriate policing activities, and a whole variety of other basic public services to these uh, to the old ward neighborhoods. Um, of people of color uh, until they start to gentrify, in which at which point uh, the city comes in and redoes the water lines, the sewer lines, the streets. Uh, the police start riding bicycles around and do neighborhood policing and and all the like. And um, so, you know, the whole system sort of works to drive people um, of means out of these neighborhoods until. Uh, developers are ready to come in and repurpose them for somebody else uh, other than the poor people who live there now. So there's very little, you know, there's very little transitional type of neighborhoods. They have a tendency to move and to, to transition pretty fast. How has the segregation that you've described shaped the impact of the storm and how will it shape the recovery? Oh gosh, so much to say about about uh, disaster recovery. We've been through uh, a number of these. We've been through Hurricane Katrina and the resettlement of uh, evacuees from Louisiana in Texas, which I think had its problems in our state in terms of putting people back in um, neighborhoods that were under-resourced and racially segregated. We've been through Hurricane Rita and Hurricane Ike and Dolly Hurricane Dolly hit the Rio Grande Valley where the colonists and low-income immigrants are and devastated those populations. It seems like every disaster that we get, we learn the lesson that it's poor people who bear the brunt of the suffering uh, from the disasters. Um, the Many of the neighborhoods that um, are low-income neighborhoods of color in Houston have uh, lie within lower line areas where major bayous and uh, other conveyances of water um, re resulted in homes and uh, apartments being flooded. So where we had already marginally marginal quality houses and where we had already marginally livable apartments and where we had already inadequate stormwater infrastructure in those neighborhoods, then we push lots of water through these bayous into those neighborhoods and they flooded and the water sets and because they're the low-lying areas. Um, so once again, 
um, you know, the neighborhood, these, these historic neighborhoods of color are the ones that, uh, that suffered a lot. There are other neighborhoods and I don't want to say that, you know, there's a lot of white neighborhoods, uh, a lot of higher income neighborhoods out there on the West side, a lot of middle-class neighborhoods that have suffered. Um, I've heard people say this was an equal opportunity storm. I don't think that's exactly the case. I think that there, there was a lot of suffering across uh, racial lines, but as always, the people who will end up not recovering from this disaster, the people who have, will have their life savings tapped out, the people who are uh, trying to recover, the people who will end up in a worse situation when this is all said and done and the recovery process is over, will be greatly disproportionately people of color and low-income people. Um, Texas has um, struggled to fairly administer disaster recovery funds over these previous four or five major disasters that have happened. Uh, we filed a fair housing complaint in uh, 2009 and 10 against the state of Texas over its administration of disaster recovery funds for Hurricane Ike and Dolly. Uh, because we saw that the state was systematically uh, steering the money away from uh, the areas that had the direct storm impact and into uh, a whole network of 54 counties all across East Texas uh, where there was a desire by local governments to capture disaster recovery funds and use them for general public infrastructure programs that you know, local governments had been deferring for a long period of time. I don't want to say they didn't need it, but I want to say that we used to, we used to say that uh, the state adopted uh, an allocation system for disaster recovery funds that they referred to as the weather model. And we referred to as that the, there were a lot of, there was a lot of disaster recovery money directed to counties uh, where basically the impact of the storm was that it rained a lot on some cows in a pasture. Um, the, um, the state has struggled with, uh, with, uh, basic compliance with civil rights, uh, provisions and the fair, uh, provision of disaster recovery money to storm victims in the Rio Grande Valley, for instance, and FEMA has also struggled with this and not done a particularly good job historically. FEMA used to send inspectors into um, uh, to look at people's homes who were private contractors who FEMA hired and provided very little direction to them on whether they would what they would consider when they determined whether uh, a structure had suffered storm damage. And we had uh, tens of thousands of households in the Lower Rio Grande Valley who were victims of Hurricane Dolly, who's uh, the the FEMA contract inspectors determined there was no damage to the structures because they said that uh, the houses were in such bad shape before the disasters because the people were so poor that uh, they blew over. It was it was just unreasonable to think that they could ever weather any storm. So they basically wrote them off and denied them any assistance at all. Uh, Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid sued FEMA over this. It's uh, it has uh, been working on a settlement with FEMA. It's still going on in the district court in 
Washington, federal district court in Washington over trying to force FEMA to adopt basic standards. But the state itself, in the end, administers much of the community, the long-term disaster recovery funds, what we call community development block grant disaster recovery funds. Those funds, uh, the state has... Um, the state has struggled to equitably treat um, uh, people of color and particularly low-income people uh, with those resources. Um, and uh, you know, we're uh, hoping that uh, the state is beginning to learn some of those lessons. That may be a very optimistic hope. Uh, note that. Uh, Today, the governor, or last night, the governor, Governor Abbott, announced a storm czar to deal with long-term recovery. And the statement that was issued talked about rebuilding infrastructure and uh, rebuilding roads and uh, and the like. But it did not mention at all rebuilding the homes of anybody who had lost their home uh, from the disaster. I think the emphasis here. Um, is uh, is too often not on um, the survivors of the storm and too often on um, the overall uh, the huge amount of money that can be used for uh, public infrastructure purposes. I don't want to I don't want to say we don't need storm protection. We need storm protection and we need better infrastructure. But to, uh, you know, it's been our historical observation that in past disasters. That infrastructure hasn't provided stormwater systems in those uh, neighborhoods in Houston and in hundreds of other small cities that have been affected in Texas by these repeated disasters. It hasn't put storm sewers in those in the low-income neighborhoods of color. It's more often uh, created other infrastructure projects that uh, that benefit other other interests and. Um, quite often, it's a very small portion of the um, of the actual survivors of disaster who ever see any long-term recovery assistance. One of the greatest things that we're worried about is that, um, you know, for 200 years, we've built a system of Jim Crow residential segregation, which has been separate and unequal in this state. Unequal in the sense of of uh, lack of investment of public facilities and services and lack of quality schools and uh, flood protection and all the like. And um, the massive amount of money that will come to the state can either, will either, when it's all said and done, that will either directly address overcoming that Jim Crow segregation and the the harm that's been done by the failure to provide infrastructure in its wake, or it will simply leave it in place on the ground. And um, I'm very concerned that the leadership and the demands are not being made to make sure that uh, disaster recovery funds begin the long process of dismantling Jim Crow. John Hennenberger, thank you very much. Sure, thank you.
John Henneberger is an expert in equitable disaster recovery and co-director of Texas Housers, an affordable housing advocacy group based in Austin. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once was reportedly overheard saying, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting two new episodes every week and can continue to do so with your support on Patreon.com. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Also, if it's on iTunes, please leave a review, not just to feed the corporate Apple Borg, but because it helps introduce us to new listeners, which means we get more listeners, which is fantastic. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Also, once again, please find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. They are what allows this thing to keep going.